Just because you're on a safari halfway around the world doesn't mean the wildlife have to come when you call. Mary Morris went all the way to the tigers to spot the big cats in the wilds of central India. As it turned out, even their absence was meaningful. This is my journey. This is my destination. If I don't see a tiger, if you've just brought me to this beautiful place, it is enough. Midwestern comfort foods might feel all-American, but they often originated in the old world. It was Cornish miners who brought the precursor of the Hot Pocket to Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It was a savory dish and a sweet dish enclosed in a singular pastry shell, the original pasties at least. Coming up, Matthew Gavin Frank looks at the stories and the side dishes that come with the iconic foods of mid-America. The accompaniments with Cincinnati chili, I don't know, defy both expectation and reason, really. And listeners tell us what they're thinking on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Matthew Gavin Frank knows how to liven up an American potluck as he serves up juicy tales to accompany signature foods from all 50 states. He takes us for a dive into the comfort foods of the Midwest in just a minute. Travel writer Mary Morris takes us on a journey all the way to the Tigers as a safari to India reveals mostly what's unexpected. And later in the hour, listeners check in with feedback from what they've heard on recent editions of Travel with Rick Steves. If you imagine the typical dish from your home state, what comes to mind? And what does that food illustrate about your state's history and culture? Matthew Gavin Frank focuses on one famous food from each of the 50 states and draws those historic and cultural connections for us in his book, The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. Today, Matthew joins us as we focus on a road trip through Midwestern states and tastes. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Howdy, Rick. Thank you for having me. Now, you worked for 20 years in the restaurant industry, and you've set out to have this one unique sort of a dish from each state. That's a pretty big statement. Is it realistic that there's a dish from every state that reflects that state's culture? And, and do states have their own individual cultures? It's, it's completely unrealistic, actually. But I had to boil it down to one for the sake of the book. So, um, of course, no state culture is monolithic. Um, all of these uh, states have multifaceted identities. Um, but for the sake of the book, I had to pick one. That's fun. And can you really distinguish states by culture? I mean, states have their own culture, but each culture, you know, uh, houses its own various subcultures. So I feel like each state is a tapestry and not necessarily representing a singular culture, but um, that tapestry could kind of be unique to a particular state, you know, South Carolina okay. versus Minnesota, for instance. Reading through your book, I, I get hungry, and I'm ready to travel right now. So take us to Minnesota. What's a dish in Minnesota that would be sort of um, iconic, and then how does that represent that culture? Yeah, so for Minnesota, I chose a hot dish, which isn't really easily defined. I, I was speaking to somebody in Minnesota about it, and uh, this one particular chef basically defined it as a catch-all casserole that was birthed in desperation. So you could have various different kinds of, of hot dish. It is a casserole. It's usually a one-pot dish. The most popular one that you find in kind of holes in the wall in Minnesota um, involve like a hamburger, mashed potato, string bean, cream of mushroom soup, lechoy fried onion hot dish. 
it sounds like uh, if you're getting together, you bring a hot dish, right? I mean, that's what people do when they have a fellowship together. And you, you even talked about how, you know, they would gather together in the warmest place in town, which would be like the basement of the Lutheran church. And I could just see people saying, yeah, I'll bring a hot dish. And then they kind of grab whatever they've got and heat it up and tie it together with some mushroom soup. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. The mushroom soup uh, actually became uh, so favored as the binding agent in hot dish and so ubiquitous that it became known in, in early hot dish circles as Lutheran binder, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, kind of wonderful. But they used to have these epic potlucks in um, the basements of Lutheran churches. Okay, and bring a hot dish. So that's Minnesota, and that's the Lutheran culture there. What about Michigan. I'm presently living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Um, I'm originally from Chicago, but I chose the kind of um, culinary or gustatory mascot of uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which is the pasty, uh, which is um, like a almost like a calzone. The original pasties uh, were typically eaten by miners, and it was a savory dish and a sweet dish enclosed in a singular pastry shell, the original pasties at least. And the miners would eat down through the savory, usually like stewed ground beef and rutabaga. And after they got through that, they would find at the bottom of the shell this lovely kind of apple and cinnamon compote. Um, So two courses in one shell. I think of this as a dish from Cornwall. And yeah, it it seems like a calzone also from, from Italy. But Cornwall has that mining connection and in Cornwall, uh, famously, the, the, the miners would have dirty hands, and, and at lunchtime, they would have actual handles on this uh, pasty that they could hold, and then they eat all the, the good food, and then they actually get to the dessert, and then they just toss away the little handles. Does that just relate to a mining kind of culture, and what are you going to do for lunch in an era before you know, plastic bags? It, it does. Um, in, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, like from the 1850s through the 1930s, like native copper was just about leaking from the earth. And so a lot of the immigrant miners here were from Cornwall, but so many more were Finns, Austrian, Croatian, Italian, Canadian, Swedish. And so this kind of uh, hybrid pasty was born here. Matthew Gavin Frank teaches creative writing at Northern Michigan University. He's written The Mad Feast as what he calls an ecstatic tour through America's food. It includes wild backstories to accompany a dish from each of the 50 states. You can hear his earlier look at the foods of the South. It's posted with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Matthew, take us to Wisconsin. Uh, So uh, Wisconsin, I I picked the uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin-style bratwurst. Unlike uh, many bratwursts that um, you would find uh, in Sheboygan, they tend to uncase the bratwurst. Uh, they pull the meat out of the casing itself and flatten it, almost like a burger. And you eat it kind of on a hard roll with butter, ketchup, brown mustard, raw onion, and pickles. Uh, it's it's pretty wonderful. <laughs> and, and does that go back to its... Uh... German immigrant history, or, or where does that go back to? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, the German immigrant history in Wisconsin is is pretty profound, and the Sheboygan bratwurst hasn't strayed too far from it. Hey, um, Matthew, take us to Iowa. So Iowa, I picked uh, the loose meat sandwich, which you really don't find anywhere else except in Iowa. It's uh, the best way to describe a loose meat sandwich. Maybe would be like a sloppyless sloppy Joe. So sort of like a sloppy joe without all of uh, without all of the sauce, just kind of like a, a seasoned ground beef and onion. And it's known as the loose meat because the meat itself is so loose and crumbly and kind of bursts out of the bun when you bite into it. 
Is it on a toasted bun or just a soggy bun? Uh, usually it's on a, it's kind of like on a soggy, spongy, uh, white bread bun, um, no frills. Okay. I'm in the mood for some chili. Take me to Ohio. Well, uh, if you want some good Cincinnati chili, um, yeah, um, it, can, it can be found. The Cincinnati chili is absolutely fantastic, and it's uh, unique in its spices. A lot of cinnamon and clove in a Cincinnati chili, and the accompaniments with Cincinnati chili um, just kind of defy both expectation and reason, really. You could get a Cincinnati chili straight up. You could get it uh, Cincinnati chili one-way, two-way, three-way, four-way, or five-ways. Um, you could get it with onion. You could get it with onion over pasta. All sorts of um, interesting kind of combinations with the chili. It's, it's pretty great. And this would go back to their, uh, the Macedonian community? That's right. Uh, these Macedonian brothers actually uh, started Cincinnati Chili with a, a little street food stand. Um, they started cooking um, Macedonian and Grecian cuisine, and they found that uh, the folks in Cincinnati um, weren't going for it so much, so they tried their hand at chili. Um, they were cooking uh, basically down the road from an old burlesque show, so uh, a lot of the women who were performing at the burlesque show would, would get out in the wee hours and gorge themselves on, uh, on the Macedonian Brothers Cincinnati Chili on the corner. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Matthew Gavin Frank, and his book is called The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. And, you know, Matthew, I just love the way this book celebrates food, but it also celebrates the, the cultural roots of each of our states here in the United States. As you were traveling around the country to do this, we're just talking about the Midwest right now, but, you know, I guess when I'm traveling around the United States with my work as a TV producer, I'm always getting people coming out of the woodwork saying, why don't you do a show on Macedonia? Why don't you do a show on Lithuania? Why don't you do a show on Poland? And it, it represents where their heritage is. And where I live in Seattle, why don't you do another show on Norway? That sort of shows itself in the passion for, for the cuisine locally. As you traveled around the United States, and you went to all 50 states to do this book, what sort of overall you know, conclusions did you draw about what is the fabric of our of our nation as a whole when it comes to all these individual cultures? It's kind of funny, Rick. I had a, a similar experience when I was driving around um, talking to people, interviewing people, uh, people who work at historical societies, um, chefs, local folks in, in towns at like county fairs and things like that. I kind of found like a, a similar response um, when I was telling them about the dish. I was thinking about exploring. They were saying, well, why don't you write an essay instead about this? Why don't you write an essay instead about that? And so, of course, I, I couldn't do it all. So as far as drawing conclusions go, this kind of uh, travel actually complicated um, the U.S. for me rather than like boiled it down to like a singular identity like this, this kind of uh, travel and talking to all of these people from various and diverse cultures. It almost it almost made me resist uh, drawing conclusions and just kind of celebrating these kind of multitude of voices as I as I went through and multitude of dishes. I love that, how it complicated rather than simplified your understanding of our country. I was in, I think it was North Dakota or South Dakota. I'm not much, my, my beat is Europe, you know, but everybody was talking about this German cuisine. And I thought, oh, you've got, you've got a German heritage. No, it's Russian heritage, and it's Germans that went to Russia and then went to North Dakota. And I just thought, my head is spinning, but it's so obvious to the people that live there. Uh, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it, as you travel around the country and, and whether you're enjoying the history or the architecture or the food, you realize that we have a fascinating weave. 
truly. It was a it was a wonderful experience. So uh, let's just finish off with. Uh, I understand you're from Chicago. Uh, what's the iconic dish in Illinois, and uh, what does it say about the culture? Well, it's more the iconic dish of Chicago than uh, Illinois. Uh, I'm right. so sorry, but um, I had to go with deep dish pizza. The genesis of deep dish pizza in Chicago um, is kind of chalked up to legend. Nobody knows the the real story, but it was said to have been invented in 1943, possibly to commemorate the launching of the city's first subway, possibly to commemorate the Bears winning of the Super Bowl, which was then just known as the league title. And there was a mm. pizzeria, um, Pizzeria Uno on Ohio Street, that would do thin crust and on a whim, an unnamed chef. Some think it might be Rudy Malnati, who later went on to open Lou Malnati's pizzeria, who was then a mere line cook, um, just decided to put together on a whim a, a thick crust pizza. And, and that's essentially how it was born. And I love thin crust pizza, too. I, I never understood yeah. the pizza wars between New York and Chicago. I just yeah. thought, why not love both? Why not? That's great. Matthew Gavin Frank, thanks so much for writing the book, The Mad Feast, and taking us on an ecstatic tour through America's food. Bon appetit and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Matthew Gavin Frank is the author of The Mad Feast. He investigates how carrier pigeons are used in South Africa's illicit diamond trade in his latest book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. His website is matthewgfrank.com. Mary Morris was raised in the Midwest in a woodsy Chicago suburb. She's known for her works of fiction and nonfiction. Her latest is a memoir of an attempt to view one of the world's most elusive predators on a safari in India. She joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Tigers have captivated poets, writers, artists, and adventurers for centuries. Author Mary Morris found herself increasingly drawn to these majestic and dangerous animals during a lengthy recovery from a devastating injury. Her latest travel memoir, All the Way to the Tigers, tells of her journey to the jungle heart of India in search of personal healing and the elusive tiger. Mary joins us now to talk about travel, tigers, and the secret gifts we can sometimes find in our disappointment. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. Boy, your book, it's just so fascinating to follow your journey all the way to the Tigers. Now, it starts with an injury in New York. Can you set the scene for us? You know, as as we know, travelers know that often the, the itinerary gets put aside and the, the detours take over. And um, I had a sabbatical in 2008, and it was the first day of my sabbatical. And I, you know, I had a small child at home. I didn't have a child at home anymore. I was free. I was going to be a nomad. And I was going to look for my next journey. I was going to look for the next story I wanted to tell. And a whim, I said to my husband, let's go ice skating. And um, we went ice skating. And an hour later, I was in the ER. And I spent the next several months um, on my back. And um, I had a very long pity party. I didn't go anywhere. I kept begging my, my surgeon, my trauma surgeon. I kept saying, can I go to Morocco in six weeks? And he kept smiling and walking out of the room. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly the way I planned to spend those months. Um, I thought I would be going all over the world. So... It was Easter Sunday. Um, my husband's a journalist. He works on Sundays. I was home alone. And for various reasons, I was reading Death in Venice, probably not to cheer myself up, but I was reading Death in Venice. And I came to a line, and the line was, he would go on a journey not far, not all the way to the Tigers. And it was like a bolt of lightning went through me, Rick. I can't even describe the moment. I just read that line over and over again. And I knew that 
when I could walk again, and actually my surgeon wasn't sure if I ever would walk again, I would go all the way to the Tigers. And it just became a commitment. It became a like a focal point that I just I had to go towards. In the midst of thinking about the book, I began to remember why Tigers mattered to me. And that's also part of the story in terms of my childhood and and then they became to mean much, much more to me in the, in the course of researching the book and then finally getting all the way to the tigers. So it's going to India to see tigers, but it's also getting over your, your injury. And, and it's like you talk, it's, it's a journey both within and without. I mean, we'll talk about the journey to India in a moment, but what was the journey within? I love transformational travel, uh, but it's usually without. Talk about within. Right. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I've, I've been a solo traveler and a solo woman traveler for many decades now. And one of the things that became important to me when I started writing about travel was the interface between the inner journey and the outer journey. And the outer journey was to go and see tigers. The inner journey was to find myself again as a writer, um, as a woman, as a person who had strength and courage. The more I read about tigers, I mean, they are they are solitary apex predators um, one of the things I loved that my guide told me on one of the first days out was that all unseen tigers are she. So if there's a tiger in the wilderness and you don't, you can't see it, so you can't identify its gender, it, they always refer to it as she is out there. And I started to think, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a writer. You know, there are just so many things about me and my life that I began to identify with these hmm. magnificent creatures. And it became... You know, later my trauma surgeon told me that uh, a racehorse was put down for less than the injury I had. He said it was mm. the worst bone break that he had seen of that particular bone. So mm. I, to me, it was about healing, but it was, you know, it was inner healing. It was just feeling like, you know, literally I had my legs back, mm-hmm. you know, physically, but also like I could do it. To me, the, the definition for me of courage was always that you're you're afraid, but you still do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's something about that. And when I made the decision, you know, and I said to my husband, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it alone, he said, of course you are. Yeah, and, you know, well, of course and, you are. And we should remind people, I think you, you made your mark as as a writer with this classic book you wrote, what, in the 1980s, Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a, of a Woman Traveling Alone. So you have that sort of passion for inspiring women to get out there and embrace the world, I think. A lot of people say travel is is a journey more than a destination, what was your destination, and how did that relate to the journey in your experience? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the book that was very important to me where I had this incredible guide who it was completely random. You go and you wait for a guide, and and someone will jump in your Jeep at 6 in the morning, and, you know, who knows? And when our guide jumped in the Jeep, my driver said, you got the best guide in all of India. And I was like, okay cool. So I'm going to learn a lot. He's going to talk to me. He's going to lecture. I'm going to learn things. He never said a word to me. He's absolutely silent. And, you know, we're going through and all he did was tell me to be quiet. He kept telling me to be quiet. And he listened. He listened and I learned how to listen. And there was a point where I realized we might not actually see a tiger after our fifth or sixth day of doing this because it was very, very cold. And at one point they took me to this incredibly beautiful place. It was bucolic and there were animals everywhere. But Clearly, because there were animals any, everywhere, there were no tigers. Because if there had been tigers, the you know the, the mm. different animals would not have been out, you know, having having a nice time. And I said to them, "This is my journey. This is my destination. If I don't see a tiger, if I'm if you've just brought me to this beautiful place, it is enough. It wasn't enough for them, but it was enough for me. And so, you know, I think mm-hmm. I think when we travel, 
yes, we can have our itineraries and we can plan to see this and we can plan to see that. But, you know, if we find ourselves wandering down the side street, if suddenly we are taking a very different journey than the one we planned yeah. on. Don't so despair. You go with, you, that's, that's your journey. That's the one you go with. You wrote, you wrote a, a beautiful idea about this sort of elusive goal. Don't look for a tiger. Look for the signs of a tiger. I'm so glad you, you evoked that because that's absolutely true. That was one of the things that, that I learned in Tiger Safari. You don't look for the tiger because you won't find it. You look for the signs. And I think that that can apply to just about anything in our lives, but it, it can also apply to the idea of travel that, you know, you don't set your sights straight ahead, that you, you know, you, you look for the signs that, and see where things take you. Let things take you. We're talking with author Mary Morris, and her book is All the Way to the Tigers. Today, she's exploring themes of healing and redemption in the jungles of India. Her website is marymorris.net. So you're hobbling, literally hobbling around India, which is a, whether you're hobbling or not, it's a challenging country when you're out in the wilds of India. And uh, you wrote, The Solitude and Wilderness of the Tiger Reaches into Our More Primitive Selves. So it's reaching into our more primitive selves. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, if we just talk about a tiger as an animal right now, as a beautiful animal, I mean, to me, they kind of represent one of the last truly wild things. Um, A male tiger requires about 100 square kilometers of territory Hmm. just for itself. So, you know, you can just imagine how complicated it is to sort of keep that all going. And I, I know for myself, I'm I'm always looking for that part of me that can still be wild, that can be free, that can, you know, I don't need 100 square kilometers, but, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, <laughs> just to let ourselves roam and give ourselves the freedom um, of our own wildness. You know, one of the things that this pandemic, I think, even though we've been stuck at home and, and all that, is that I, I know for me, uh, we've been living in a cabin in the woods, really a remote place, um, just to be near our our daughter and her family. But I mean, I don't see anybody for days. But I, I wander the the woods. I've learned to listen the way perhaps my guide Ag taught me to listen. I mean, I've just, you know, this is just another detour. Mary Morris teaches writing at Sarah Lawrence College in New York. Her novels, short stories, and nonfiction works often deal with the tension between home and away. Besides All the Way to the Tigers, her earlier travel memoirs include Wall to Wall, From Beijing to Berlin by Rail, and Angels and Aliens, A Journey West. So, Mary, why India? I mean, India is a, it's a world in itself in so many ways. What's good about India as a destination for you? You know, I, I will say that in my search for tigers, there were other journeys I took to Thailand and, and other places, but India, India took over. Why India? I like complexity. I like color. I like food. You know, there are a lot of things that are very troubling and disturbing about India. Obviously, the poverty. Um, I had a lot of trouble with the street orphans. That was really difficult. There are a lot of difficult things. But I feel like there's something about India that there's a rawness there that is it's hard to get in Paris. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. There's something, again, it's a kind of visceral experience of life. And I, I feel like I'm always, I always want the unprocessed life, you know? You know, I, I surprise a lot of people when they ask me, what's my favorite country? And I say, India. I've been there on two mm. great trips. My whole thing is teaching people how to travel. I could never imagine taking people on a tour to India. It's just too personal. It's too unpredictable. It's not, it doesn't lend itself, I don't think, to a bus tour, but it's, it lends itself to finding the wildness inside of you. And it, it just rearranges all my cultural furniture in a way that I find really stimulating. 
Right. I mean, the the rawness of it, The I think we, we tend to sort of, I don't know, sanitize our lives and, mm-hmm. and hide from the difficult and, and all that. And I, I think, you know, one of the things for me in India that just deeply moved me was how you know, that thin line between life and death, but also the the vibrancy of it, um, mm-hmm. the the color, the food, the street life, mm. you know, the, the craziness of it. Just it touched me in a very deep way, really. It's not everybody can lose themselves in India, but if you have the opportunity, I think it's very rewarding. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Morris, and her latest travel memoir is called All the Way to the Tigers, How She Found Herself in search of one of the world's most elusive predators in India. Her first lesson she learned was don't look for a tiger. Instead, look for the signs of the tiger. We have links to her work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Uh, let's talk a little bit just from a practical tiger hunting point of view or, or tiger seeing point of view. Right. Um, your book is, um, it's not a guidebook, but what travel lessons are hiding out in it uh, when it comes to um, having a, an experience that really is impactful? So don't go in the winter because they tend to not be out. So you want to go in the warmer seasons. I do recommend where I went. I really liked Pench, which is kind of in central India. If you go to the more popular tourist places, mm-hmm. you will be in a Jeep with, you know, 10 other people. Mm-hmm. And they'll all be taking pictures and, you know, doing that. So, you know, I, I would recommend, you know, going in the warmer months getting every possible vaccination and take antibiotics with you, you know, take a full whatever you think you need, bring it with you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, get a little bit off the beaten path. You know, if you're, if you're not a seasoned traveler, at least allow yourself to get a little bit off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. And, and also work with a company that will give you a good driver, uh, mm. not, not, a, not a driver to take you into the parks. But I had a driver who drove me from place to place. And you really cannot get around without a good driver. Right. That's extremely important. It's like in also Jamaica. I've been doing a lot of work recently in Jamaica. And, you you know, there's some places you just, you know, even though it kind of goes against me in a way, I don't really like to have a driver. But you really do need that in, in India. Now, Mary, you left home broken in a certain way. I mean, broken with your leg. Um, yes. And you were on this journey. Was it a healing experience? I mean, how was it just for your leg? <laughs> that was the question <laughs> when the doctor said, if, if you were a horse, we'd put you to sleep. Um, right. But um, how was it also just for healing in, in any other ways? What was that journey within the result of all your travels? You know, I feel like, you know, when you're, when you're sick and you start to get better, but it kind of slowly works its way into your soul, you know, you start to say, I'm, I'm better, I can... I feel like going out. I feel like eating, you know. And and, and I, I think it was a little bit like that. I mean, I had been, first of all, I was traumatized. I was feeling, quite frankly, a little old, you know. Here am I. Am I ever going to really walk again? I, mm-hmm. I, I went to a doctor for a second opinion. He said, well, we'll do an ankle replacement in two years. Mm-hmm. That was nine years ago. I have not had an ankle replacement. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I've always been this crazy, determined person. And I don't let things really get in my way. I mean, my spirit was really low when I left, and I came back feeling quite exhilarated. I mean, I felt that, first of all, I had seen beauty, um, I had seen kindness, and I had had an adventure. But, you know, I think I think for other people wanting to do something like this, I would plan it, but I guess I'd say I wouldn't over-plan it. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, India is a place where you've just got to let serendipity happen. India is all about serendipity, and you've got positive serendipity and negative serendipity, and it's a country that you cannot predict. 
I think it's important to bring with you some context and some understanding of the culture so you can get the most out of those surprise moments. We're talking with author Mary Morris, and her book is All the Way to the Tigers. Mary's also written an historically-based novel, The Jazz Palace, set in Chicago. Her story collections include Vanishing Animals and The Lifeguard Stories. You made your mark as a writer, I think, celebrating women traveling. You traveled alone in a world where women have a different reality than in the West, in the Hindu world. What lessons for solo female travel did you draw from this experience in India? You know, I want to go back to one thing that... um a teacher of mine once said years ago, he said, there are only two plots in all of literature. You go on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And I thought about that a lot. And I thought I thought about Melville and Cervantes and Tolstoy. And, you know, men could go to war, men could go to sea, but women couldn't. And so women had to wait for the stranger. You know, from Jane Austen to Virginia Woolf, women, women are waiting. And I, I didn't want to be one of those women. I didn't want to be waiting. You know, I wanted to be on the road. I wanted to be engaged. I wanted to be out there. And another thing that I, I realized as a woman when I started to write about travel, I mean, so I, tra- I traveled for years before I wrote about it. I keep copious journals. And so it was all in my journals. But I never I never wrote about it until the New York Times came out with this this summer travel issue of like 25 travel books. And they were, quite frankly, all by men. And I thought, OK, well, what is it about the experiences of women? Like, why aren't women writing about, A, are women traveling? And B, how are women experiencing the world? And I realized that for me as a woman, I move through the world differently than a man. And I don't like to always draw gender distinctions, but I, I do think that in, when it comes to travel, you know, you got to have some eyes behind your back. You got to really, you know, I, you got to use your street smarts. You, you know, you have to be aware. And um, I would say, honestly, I, I don't know that I've ever been in a situation where I, I didn't know where the door was and I couldn't get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been very careful that way. And... To me, travel isn't isn't necessarily about taking risks. It's about allowing experiences to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to, like, go bungee jumping or do something really crazy to have an experience. You know, it could be as simple as what I did today, which I took the subway for the first time since the pandemic began, and I thought it was just awesome. <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe yeah. I got on the train, and I loved it. And then I walked through Central Park, and that was my adventure for the day. I think as women, we have to own our own experiences and realizes that they are valid, that our voice is valid, and that however you want to go through the world, you know, like solo travel is not going to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bring a buddy, you know, bring a friend or meet up with somebody. You know, just be be smart. Be smart about it. And for this adventure, when you hobbled all the way to India yes. to write All the Way to the Tigers, I don't think it was a coincidence that you had a mission to find that elusive, majestic feline that was so solitary in the wilderness and maybe get closer to your own wilderness. Yes, I, I think that, you know, through my through getting older, through my accident, I had lost touch with that part of myself, that wildness, that spontaneity, the surprise, the serendipity, mm-hmm. and the kind of mystery of being who we are. And I, I found it in these creatures. I found it in their beauty and their elegance and their their mystery. And I think your book, All the Way to the Tigers, can inspire women and men to find our wilderness, too. Mary Morris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
Mary Morris tells us why she changed her itinerary to avoid the typical golden triangle tourist route in India, and she shares a riverside incident that didn't make it into All the Way to the Tigers. You can hear it in a program extra at ricksteves.com radio. Every so often, we hear from a listener who wants to share an idea prompted by something they heard on a recent show of ours. We'll check in with a few of them next on Travel with Rick Steves. Perhaps what you hear on Travel with Rick Steves brings up an interesting travel memory for you. Or maybe you want to add to our conversations. And even if you want to point out something that you think we could improve on, we always welcome your email correspondence to radio at ricksteves.com. We replied to several listeners who wrote us recently to follow up on the air with what they had to say. Let's start with Betsy in Santa Barbara, California. She has an interesting suggestion for exploring the banks of the Thames when you're in the middle of London. It was prompted by listening to Laura Maclem's recent interview about mudlarking. Hi, Betsy. Well, I was thinking of the Queen Height Dock Mosaic in London, one of the wonderful destinations for people who can walk along the Thames there. Oh, tell me more about that. I've not seen that. Well, this is a mosaic that shows the story of the founding of London by the Romans way back in about 43 uh, current era, Mm -hmm. all the way to modern times. Wow. And it was created by David Tootle at South Bank Mosaics, Mm-hmm. And it was installed in 2014. So if you haven't been to London mm. since then, it's a wonderful new thing to, to see. Betsy, when you do this, I love the South Bank Walk. So when you walk, you know, basically from the Westminster Bridge down to the Tower Bridge, do you walk right by this mosaic? It's actually on the retaining wall, the flood wall mm-hmm. along the Thames. I don't know the exact oh, okay. address. But it's a big feature there now. It's 30 meters long, which is almost 100 feet long. And do you look at it actually from the river bank down at low tide when you yes, walk in the Yes, you rocks? can walk right up and, and touch it. It's ah. right on the river bank. And then while you're there, you can do a little mudlarking. Exactly. When the tide is out on the Thames, the water goes down and it uncovers... Um, ceramics and artifacts all the way back to Roman times. Now, did you actually do that? I have not personally done that, but David Tuthill, when he was organizing the mosaic, had a number of researchers Mm -hmm. accompany him, and they did a lot of mudlarking and and actually created a border for the mosaic using artifacts for the chronological time as it was depicted in the mosaic. Wait a minute that, see, they would find things in the low-tide mudflats that were correlating with the century depicted on that mosaic, and they would put it in as a border? That is fantastic. The part of the mosaic that refers to Roman times, the border, has artifacts from the actual Roman times that were Ah, found in the river. That's beautiful. Now, I'm going to put on my list to see this mosaic you're talking about, Tracing London's History from Roman Times to the Present, and is exactly. it, what, it's called the South Bank Mosaic, or, or what's it called? Actually, it's called the Queen Height Dock Mosaic. And height is spelled H-I-T-H-E. Okay. And it actually means natural inlet or small 
haven. Mm-hmm. It was the very first port in London, and it's in continual okay. use today. Hey, Betsy, thanks so much for your call. That is fascinating. Well, you're very welcome. Could mm-hmm. I add something about the dock mosaic? Sure. Um, David Toothill, who created it, now has the London School of Mosaic, and they uh, have a social mission. They work with vulnerable people and troubled juveniles, mm-hmm. and they incorporate their help into the historical mm. mosaics that they make all over London. Mm, that's great. And now, they have courses, like day courses and weekend courses. So if you, people are visiting London, they can actually take a short mosaic course at the London School of Mosaic. So people can study that just by Googling London School of Mosaic, and the artist uh, we're talking about is David Tootill, T-O-O-T-I-L-L. And are you inspired by David Tootill's work here in the United States? I am. As a matter of fact, he and his collaborator uh, came to Santa Barbara to teach a three-day course because I am designing the Santa Barbara Historic Timeline Mosaic. And we're going to go from the Jurassic period to contemporary times, like 150 million years of (laughs) time in 50 feet of mosaic. Uh, I was going to joke, you're a beautiful town, but you don't have the history of London, but you're going to get into much deeper time than than human history. Exactly. Thank you. We got two interesting things to put on our travel list now, Santa Barbara and London, these historic mosaics. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. After talking to Betsy, we looked up her blog and website about her own mosaic collection and about the Santa Barbara Timeline Mosaic that she manages. You'll find links in today's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We're checking in with listeners like you at 877-333-7425 to follow up on their feedback to things they've heard recently on Travel with Rick Steves. Sharon's calling in from Homer, way up in Alaska. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Rick. Well, thanks for listening to us way up in Alaska there, Sharon. And not just way up in Alaska. Homer, that's on the north end, isn't it? Uh, not the north end, but it is the official end of Highway 1. There We're you at go. the end of the road. Maybe that's <laughs> the end of the road. Very good. So what is your what are your uh, thoughts? What do you have to share? Well, I, I was listening to a great show you did on the on someone who had redone the Harriman Fjord trip uh, in a kayak and also some traveling in Glacier Bay. And I I was just aware that you know, when we're traveling all over the world, we always want to get in touch with the local culture. And uh, sometimes what's apparent is only the current culture. And um, there were some references to language that I think is starting to shift in Alaska. Hmm. Uh, for instance, the, we might be the last frontier, but there are also people who have lived here for 10,000 years. And um, yeah, just well, that's, to acknowledge that's that is very well. That's very important. Is I mean, I think even some state mottos are that sort of needing updating. Isn't Alaska called something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think the colonizers were pretty effective in yeah. dominating the land. So well, so, so, we're all working on, on being more thoughtful about this. And obviously, Alaska is not the last frontier if you're an indigenous person that lived there with their families for generations and generations before. So... How can we rectify that when we think of going up to Alaska? What would you recommend so that we give adequate uh, respect to the people who live there first? 
Yeah, great question. I think one of the ways that the Native movement is recommending is just by knowing who the original people were on the land we're on. And that's true, not just in Alaska, but the whole world. There's a website now where you can look up and find out who were the original people there. Um, Another way is to, like, for instance, Glacier Bay, that Mm -hmm. trip that he described in Glacier Bay. The reason it's such a beautiful, pristine wilderness is that it was sacred ground to the people of Huna. And right. just recognizing that there was something else going on that kept it yeah. a wilderness all those many years and honoring that um, yeah. as well as we're traveling. Well, thank you. In our terminology, last frontier, There's there's got to be a better way than that because anything that implies that nobody lived there before we got there, what you're saying is right. you're saying nobody that has my color of skin or who speaks my language or has my religion lived there before. Um, yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for your feedback, and uh, I've learned from that myself. I'm I'm working on that. Just when we're in the business of writing about places we've traveled to, we need to just get up to date in our in yeah, our just... re- respect for the people who were there first. So, thank you, Sharon, and uh, call again whenever you have some suggestions for us. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Bye now. Ethan is on the line from Oakland in California. Hey, Ethan. Hi, Rick. I've been reading your guidebooks for longer than I can remember. Well, thanks, Ethan, and thanks for calling. Yeah, so I was listening to you and some Basque guides talk about how to visit the Basque country. I wanted to give a little plug for the town of Vitoria, which is the capital of Spanish Basque country. Huh. It's about an hour from the coast, hour and a half. It's got a cute, hilly old town, but it has one site that makes it very different from everywhere else. It has this cathedral that over the years, the bishops kept adding marble to it, and it started to collapse. And they were doing a big reconstruction project. But in the meantime, you can tour it and see the guts of a church, the areas where no one is ever allowed. You start off the tour under the church. Literally, you're standing on the bare bedrock that someone a thousand years ago cleared off and leveled. And you can see that the church is literally above your head. Wow. And you can see that it's on two pedestals, and cutting right through the middle of it, there's a chasm that was cut by a river that still runs underground. And so the whole church is on two pedestals, but the middle of it is on nothing. Uh, I love those kind of sites when you get that sort of candid, behind-the-scenes look at a great building. Yeah. And then they take you up to the balcony level, looking over the church, where most of the time you never get to go. And then they take you behind the walls there, that really haven't been used since the Masons constructed the place. Yeah. And you see how it all fits together. You see what a church looks like. And, of course, they take you up to the bell tower at the end, and you get a beautiful view over the city. Huh. You know, and then if that's not quite enough, they do one last thing. They put you in, in an alcove with all white stones, carvings, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they have computer projector project all around you in 360. Uh, the colors that that alcove had been painted in in different centuries over the eras. Hmm. And you, it's just beautiful. And, you know, I, sometimes I go to one cathedral and I don't remember it afterwards from another cathedral. Right. This is a visit I'm never forgetting. Well, this is really, I'm, I'm so glad you called because it's got me thinking about, you know, helping people get these kind of wonderful, uh, surprise, spontaneous looks at churches. I'll never forget going into um, Gaudí's Sagrada Familia Church with a hard hat on when it was still a construction zone. And it was really fun to see that. And, when you go to Notre Dame, of course, we can't go to Notre Dame during this rebuilding time from the tragic fire, but uh, there's a site in front of Notre Dame, which is you go down under the square 
and you see the footprint of the church that was there before the Notre Dame, and you get to look at the modern footprint of the city from a foundation point of view. And a number of churches let you go underneath, and it's usually an extra fee. It's kind of like a museum that's underground in the church, reminding us that churches, even if they're 600 years old, are built usually on the footprint of an older church, which was probably built in the footprint of a temple before that. I remember in Milan, the Duomo, you can go underneath and see the Roman ruins. And there's a church in Rome just east of the Colosseum. I think it's currently a Greek Orthodox, but as you say, before that it was a church, before that it was another church, and before that it was a Roman temple. Mm. And you can go into the basement and sub-basement and sub-basement, and Mm. you get to see all the levels. Mm. So you're finally down to the real level of ancient Rome, their street level, and just the remnants of some of the sidewalks are there. The stream you're seeing is a stream that that used to be at ground level in the Roman era. Ethan, you're talking about San Clemente, a short walk from the Colosseum, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it. And you go down there and you can almost smell the dank smell of a Roman alleyway. And you're walking on 2,000-year-old cobbles and there's a Mithraic temple of some sort, some kind of a pagan temple. And then on top of that, one church. And on top of that, another church. And, oh, what an experience. Yeah. And then there's... 10-minute walk away, there are all these people in line for the Colosseum waiting 45 minutes for their turn to get in. Yeah. And if you just walk shortly over here, you get these other ancient Roman ruins with no line at all. You're right. You can go and see the San Clemente with its Roman ruins, and in the other direction, you can walk 10 minutes away and find the Baths of Caracalla. And it's never crowded. They're not quite as sexy as the Colosseum, but you can really envision Rome in its heyday when you go to these magnificent baths. And, you know, you mentioned, Ethan, uh, Vitoria. I've never been there. It's uh, And I guess one reason is when people go to Basque country, they probably are slipping it in from another a broader itinerary. And there's three towns that have a more popular appeal to the average casual visitor. Of course, you got San Sebastian, famous for its gourmet uh, tapas and so on. You got Bilbao with the Guggenheim Museum, and that's a, a wonderful city. And you got Guernica, which is the historical capital, and it is the sad um, open-air museum almost of the bombing by Hitler during the Spanish Civil War. Three very popular with tourist towns. But as you said, Vitoria is the capital, isn't it? And also, if you're interested in Rioja wine, uh, it's sort of halfway between the coast and the Rioja region. And it makes a very good base for doing wine tasting. Oh, and And that wine tasting... you get to Pamplona. Oh, yeah, you got so much. I, I guess I should have mentioned Pamplona also. And which is a fun town, even when the bulls are not running. I've, have you been to uh, San Sebastian and enjoyed the, the pinchos there, the tapas? Absolutely. Uh, but what was amazing about Victoria was the food was just as good, and there was barely a tourist in sight, yeah. no crowds, and it was a fraction of the price, too. You know, that's so wise. You sound like a good traveler. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned from your guidebooks, and All I try right. to stand on it. Ethan, thanks. Uh, your, your, your call just stoked so many... Uh, interesting ideas. I'm just so glad you called. I'm sure we're both ready to go back. Maybe that's part of it. (laughs) Happy travels, (laughs) Ethan. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye Bye. now. We're checking in with listeners who've sent us comments after hearing recent editions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. Denise is calling in from Michigan, the Upper Peninsula. Denise, thanks for your call. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, what's on your mind? Uh, it has to do with uh, an episode when you were talking with someone about the pathways in the United Kingdom and how great it was to be able to do the hiking through there. And a lady called in and asked 
uh, what she should say when she comes back to the States and goes through customs and they ask if she has been on a farm. And <laughs> the response was kind of a giggle and a side, a kind of a hem and haw. I think she just was curious about whether walking on a path that went through a farm field qualified as being on a farm. Yeah. But the the upshot of it was that this was a question that was not very important and no. up, to, up to a person's discretion whether they should actually answer it honestly or not. Well, probably you're listening to people that had no idea what farm life is like and no sensitivity to serious issues relating to that and understanding why they ask you that question. So what what should we know? Because I'm curious about this myself, you know, because I never know yeah, what, right. what was a farm, you know. was uh... Right. Well, and I, I don't have... I don't have the answer for whether yeah. that qualifies as a farm or not, but obviously if you're walking through a field where there's uh, cow patties and um, sheep yeah. muck, then you're on a farm. Okay. And the the bigger issue to us, and we raise sheep and cattle here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and there's just uh, there's some really dreaded diseases that have not made their way to the states yet. Mm. And we want to make sure that people are aware that this is not just an inconvenience when you go through customs. It's mm-hmm. the, the purpose of the question is to truly try to protect not yeah. only the livestock, but the livelihood of the people who raise them. What, what happens when you do say, yeah, I was on a farm in, in Germany or in Ireland, and then you're trying to get back into the country. Do you know what they do to you? Well, much to our dismay, oftentimes they just ask you the question, and if you say yes, you might go to another line and they say, where was it? And they t- you tell them, and they do nothing. Right. So it's really very, um, very lax. It depends yeah. on which airport you go through and who the customs people are. I'm oh, sure. yeah. But in New Zealand, when we made that reply, yes, mm-hmm. we're, we were from a farm. I mean, they made us scrub our shoes. Uh, made, mm-hmm. They made sure that, that we weren't transmitting anything via our sh- the sole yeah. of our shoes anyway. And that's a small price to pay to be have an abundance of caution. I remember back in the... Some some crisis like that, we always had to step into some disinfectant with our shoes before getting onto a bus or something like that. Right. That's yeah. Right. Well, thank you. I think that's that's just a good reminder to people that it's a, it's a serious issue, you know. Because I got to admit, most travelers and uh, myself included uh, really just think I don't know if I was on a farm or not, and does it really matter? But it does. Right, so right. thank you. Yeah, and I, I guess that, that was the point. <clears throat> reason that I actually replied was an opportunity to educate people. Um, farmers yeah. are only less, they're less than 2% of the population here in the United States, and right. most people don't pay much attention yeah. to where their food came from. And well, this truly not only is a livestock security issue, but yeah. it could be a food security issue. And if we didn't have it, we'd start paying attention in a hurry. Yes, right. All right. So thank you. Denise, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kipnikon, affiliate support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. We look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. 
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.